good uh, evening, early evening. Uh, we will do a live broadcast now in English in our series, uh, Psychology of the Mind and the Soul. This is going to be lecture number five in a series. This uh, lecture will be Lerfuat Anefesh Ve'aguf of Ruven Ben Yael Yonina Simcha Chana Vachifra Samara Uva Vachifra Aruva Chaya Bat Samara Aviva Shifra Bat Sivya Yaakov Ruven Ben Haika Also, it will be Le'avdi Le'ilui Nishmat Geinik Ben Yaakov And also Meir Chai Ben Uziel Aminov That passed just now From the horrible corona pandemic. Zrat Hashem is going to be Lerfuat, the people I mentioned, and also Leinui Nishmat, those who need this Divre Torah to elevate their soul, Zrat Hashem. We left last lecture, if you remember, speaking about how much you have to say when someone asks you about the Shiduch, how much you have to generate information. If the guy is not so great, you find him all kinds of problem if everything you have to run and say based on the fact that it's all uh, relative some things that you think it's bad it's not really bad and sometimes it's good for one or bad for the other so it's very hard to know how it would be to the girl or how the girl would be for him and also people change based on the fact that people can change many people change their personality i gave an example of one of my best Ba'alot Shuva girl that was so great, so amazing with all the skills and they set her up with a guy that at that time was not good at all, nothing compared to her. I could not understand how Hashem agreed that such a Shiduch will go and will actually finalize and they got married and today after years I found out why. The guy worked on himself, became a real man, a real angel. Baruch Hashem, a wonderful human being. Great Ben Torah. Work, learn, great children. Everything fantastic. What we couldn't see, Hashem saw all alone. And that's the end of it. We can see only <laughs> what our logic tells us, but we have so many things that are missing from being in the equation. So we really don't know. Okay, so we move on. Still in the same topic. Even the concept of saying Ubachur Tov is a good guy, it changed from one person to the other. Sometimes women say on about a specific boy, Yeletov is a good boy. Yeletov Yerushalayim, like they say in Hebrew. Good boy from Jerusalem. That's an expression of a very good boy. It doesn't mean necessarily it's true. It doesn't mean he's a good boy. They just don't want uh, the son or the daughter to disturb them in their business, everyday activity. So they're very happy that it's quiet. So, you know, that his energy is off, he's not talking too much, he's not asking too many questions, he doesn't ask for so many things, he's isolating himself in his room. It doesn't mean he's a good boy, he's just a quiet boy. But for her, the way she translated that he's a good boy, meaning it doesn't drive me crazy doesn't annoy me. That's why many women, especially now with this corona uh, quarantine, they're very happy if the rabbi will allow them to let their kids sit all day in front of the computer and play with the Xbox. For those of you who know what it is, why? It's very addictive. They can sit there from morning to night, the kids, they don't bother her. 
On the other hand, if they don't have it, or no computer, or nothing else, all day it's going to be fighting in the house, and problems, and all kinds of things. And obviously it's a full-time job. It's hard to judge a woman like this. I know it's very difficult, especially now when there's no school. I sit home, especially if she has young kids, and they drive her crazy, and a baby, and she just gave birth. And it's a very, very difficult test. But giving this kind of solution to the children and make them addicted, addicted to a screen or to some game, especially the way they make it with all these colors and music, that's very appealing. It's very much like drugs, 100%. What will happen when I go back to yeshiva and I have to sit and learn Gemara? And I have to understand the logic between the ox that gore the, 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 the sheep, who is going to pay, why, or someone who fell into a pit, because this is all foundation to all the laws that we have today. His mind right now is, when will I get home right into the screen? Like, it's very difficult for him now to connect. So that's what it is. You are making your life easy for a month or two now, when you want some uh, he- less headache. You may regret it for the rest of your life. Some people say, Rabbi, I'm not, uh, I'm only showing the kids cartoon. I give them my iPad and sit all day and watch cartoons. Yes? Did you ever watch what kind of cartoons they watch? I don't think there's one cartoon that it's kosher according to the Torah. What's in a cartoon? Dirty language, homosexuality, they drive them to become like that. They presented all kinds of Disney cartoons. And that violence pays off, like Popeye, all these things that we grew up on. What do they teach the kids? If you know how to give punches, everything in your life will work out. If not, you're going to be the loser, the one who gets the punches. And in cartoons, there are many not modest things. Boys, girls, kissing, all kinds of things. That goes into the mind of these little kids, into their subconscious. Later on, there will be major consequences to those cartoons. It's not our topic now. I have different lectures about this topic. But we have to understand that when a person says he's a good kid, why? Because he plays basketball all day outside and doesn't ask for too much. That doesn't mean he's a good kid. Or if he's quiet in the room, if he's all day on his phone. That doesn't mean he's a good kid. The way we define good kids has to be according to the Torah. And most people, when they say good or bad kids, it's not according to the Torah. For instance, some women will say, oh, he's a very annoying kid. Why? Because he asks a lot of questions. That's very smart. That shows he's not stupid. He wants to know things. He asks. And if you give him a stupid answer, he asks again because he realizes it's not the truth. You should be very happy. I always say that rabbis that push out of their class kids that ask a lot of questions about Emuna, how do we know the Torah is from Hashem? How do we know the Gemara? How can I rely on it? This doesn't make sense. How did the rabbi say such a thing? I disagree with the Rambam. I don't understand what the Gemara say, it doesn't make sense. Things like this may sound like heresy. But when it comes to kids or teenagers, not necessarily they have intention to be infidels and to fight against and to rebel against the truth. No, no. They just have a healthy logic. They don't just eat whatever you feed them. They check before they eat. And they have good question. That's not a Shegetz. That's not an Apicorus. Thousands of kids were murdered in yeshivot over the years because of asking legitimate questions. 
just because his father was a Chusid and his grandfather and grand-grandfather, all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu, were all re- religious people, that doesn't mean he has to be a robot and follow their ways. He has a question. And the Torah, by the way, has the answer to every question. Just because he asks difficult questions or questions in Emuna, or he's not so sure if Hashem listens to his prayers or what the Gemara says, it's 100%, that shows that it's a smart kid. Sometimes kids do it because they want attention, negative attention. You have to understand, a good rabbi is someone who is a combination of knowledge, knowing how to teach, being very good and friendly with his students that they know he cares about them, and most important, has a lot of patience, not to murder a kid instantly after two, three days because he asks some questions that annoys him. And if you're not ready to answer this kind of question, Maybe you set it up that you'll sit with someone who knows to prove that the Torah is divine. Or maybe it's good to show him a, a clip about it that shows that the Torah can never be written by human. This is just an example how sometimes we lose our children just because of our weaknesses. So you are already assuming that people asking about Shiduch by you, what really concerns them is the truth and only the truth. That's why you think, I must answer everything based on the truth. It's Shiduchim, you have to say the truth. If you don't say the truth, maybe I'm going to mislead them, they're going to end up in a horrible relationship, it will be, the blood will be on my hands. That's how you think, right? But from life experience, I see that not always what the people care about is the truth. When the father is asking by you questions about the potential boy for his uh, son, uh, for his daughter, or the other way around, or, or uh, a girl for your son, for his son, so what is considered by this father a good shiduch? Every father may be different than the other. It could be that he wants a chatan that he likes. Is a great, sharp learner, top in yeshiva, like he was, or like he is now, a big rabbi. He wants someone to be in his league. But that would be horrible for his daughter, this kind of boy. Or, he, or she will prefer someone totally different. But in, in the way he looks at it, this is the way it should be. It comes from an important family. Our family is a royal family. And we deserve to be in Shiduch with another royal family. And that's all he cares about, what people would say in a community. But who told you that it's good for your daughter or for your son, right? So what, what interests the father when he asks, not necessarily will be the interest of the girl. Is this considered a good Shiduch? Probably not. When the father asks about Shiduchim or the mother, they have to have one thing in mind, that the boy will know how to behave to their daughter, or the girl will know how to behave to their son. Therefore, when the father is coming to the Rosh Yeshiva and say, I want a good shiduch for my daughter, that's a very relative question. Depend who is the daughter, depend. so it depends on a lot of things. Is he really care about someone that will be good for his daughter or someone that will bring him honor? 
How many times parents dictate for their children to go to college and learn something that they want them to be, like law, medicine. I'm a doctor, you'll be a doctor. Your grandfather was a doctor, I'm a doctor, you must be a doctor. You know, you cannot break the, you know, the, her- the, the legacy. legacy, legacy of the family. So, but I'm not interested. I don't want to cut people. I don't want to see blood. I don't want to do transplant. I don't want to be around dead bodies. I don't want to see people screaming in hospital. It depresses me very much. Even when I go to visit someone, I get I want to vomit. I hate the atmosphere in the hospital. I hate the pandemics and doctors can die or nurses. I don't want this industry. I don't want this field. And I don't care if I make millions. I don't want it. No, that's what you're going to be. You don't know. That's how some parents are. What do you want to be? I want to be a musician. Musician? Yes, I like to play guitar. How are you going to make a living from it? I'm going to play in weddings. Oh my God, how did I raise such a son? You understand? This is everywhere, everywhere. Why you went to this thing in university? That's what my father wanted. That's very bad. Very bad, because he doesn't care about the life of his kid. He cares about what people would say, and it's very bad. And it happens sometimes in Shiduchim as well. People lie to themselves constantly when it comes to Shiduchim. Many times I hear a, a guy say that he wants a Shiduch that gives an apartment in Jerusalem. Apartment in Jerusalem is a lot of money. It's very expensive. So he will give a lot of very convincing arguments why he should marry this girl or should date this girl. Why? Her father will give me an apartment in Yerushalayim. It's close to where I learn. No, and then who's to say that she's good for you just because the father wants to give you an apartment? No, but it will help me to develop in my learning because I won't have to worry about rent. I will have my own apartment. He's going to give also allowance. So how do you know that's what Hashem wants? How do you know? It's not the, the advice of the Satan. Uh, maybe Hashem wants you to live in Yerucham. It's, it's a city all the way in the south of Israel. Not expensive. Nothing near Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. That the apartments are very, very cheap. And it's far away from a hectic environment. And it's more spiritual maybe. Maybe that's where it's going to be good for you. So usually, like we say always, people have this desire. They imagine something in their mind that they want, supposedly. And now they begin to give excuses. Why? It's, oh, well, come on, I make my decision based on human logic. The guy wants to say that people would say, wow, he got a great family. They gave him an apartment. That means it's somebody, real, a real big shot. Look what an apartment he got. That means he's the greatest guy in yeshiva. Who else got such an apartment in such an important building? That means he has a very good value. Are they giving him such an apartment? Oh, he's, he's got lucky. He got married to this rich and famous family. Yes, things like this exist, unfortunately, very much in a religious world. As much as we have to cry for it, but that's reality. Oh, he wants comfortable life. He doesn't really care about the learning. He doesn't want to have the burden of paying bills and running around and... and uh, trying to make money to pay his bills and one day to raise children. He wants to come to the ATM machine, meaning his, uh, his wife's father or family, or send the wife to ask for more help. Why should I kill myself if somebody else will do that for me, right? 
But, of course, he's going to give all the reasons in the world that he does it purely for his love for Torah, and he wants one day to be a big rabbi and to influence lots of people and help the nation of Israel. Okay. How much of it is true, only Hashem knows. But not always is the case. As a question, sometimes it really depends on it. That a person really wants to learn. And he wants to have enough money that he should not be disturbed with running around and making money, like most people have to do. It's true. Sometimes this one depends the, on the other. But it's not the main thing. In general, the rule is that if a person is able to sit and learn Torah, if he really wants to learn Torah after he gets married, the most important thing is not to run after a rich family or family that are willing to give you what you need, supposedly. is to focus on the girl herself. If she has the power to handle life without luxury, if she's a hard-working woman, if she wants to go and work and support that you can sit and learn, if she's willing to live in a small apartment in not such an expensive area, without all the conditions that some of her sisters have or friends. If I would have to check for myself, I would focus mainly about the devotion of the girl and not how much the parents will give and how much we will have to begin with. That's all in the hands of Hashem. Sometimes the other way around. A girl that brings a lot of money, that means she grew up rich. That means she doesn't have the mentality to live with the boy that will be a Torah scholar. Very, very soon, when the money level will go down after the first year, the problems will begin. I can't have it. You're learning 10 hours a day. I'm alone here. I grew up in a big house. I had everything I want. Now I'm alone here. It's not why I have to go to work while you're learning with all the respect. But we spoke about it before we got married. You said that's what you want. Yeah, but... Back then it was easy, now it's difficult, especially if she gave birth. When I used to give lectures in the Midrashia for girls, I used to tell the girls, I know everybody that comes here, tell you about the importance of having a Ben Torah and get married to someone who is devoted to Torah. And it's an honor to work and support the house and all that. But you should know one thing. According to the Torah, the responsibility of bringing money into the family is the responsibility of the men, not the woman. Of course, every kosher woman will do everything she can to help as much as she can. In the old days, women also worked. They did laundry, they did all kinds of uh, tailoring and all kinds of things, as much as they can bring also money to help the family. It's no problem, no contradiction. But the responsibility, if there's nothing to eat right now, who's supposed to go to the rabbi and cry and collect and go to rich people? Not the woman, it's the, the husband's responsibility. However, in today's generation, because it's impossible to go to work in places to make money without breaking the rules of the Torah, it's almost impossible. Every office you will go to work, women are not mothers, people speak in a dirty language, corruptions, all kinds of problems. It's affecting the soul of the boy badly, tremendously. So therefore, in the last generation, more and more boys want to sit and learn with no interference with the holiness, that they sit and focus in the Torah, 
because knowing that they have to go and walk in Tel Aviv or in places like this when everybody in the summer is <laughs> forgot to get dressed and it's a lot of issues, especially today when they have so much hatred in, in the media to religious people and they keep brainwashing the people against them. It reflects in everyday relationship. It's very, very difficult to do both. Not like in the old days when a person could... Uh, go and work a few hours, life was very simple, he didn't have rent, everybody built himself cabin with his own hands, there's no electric, no insurance, no cars, none of these things that we have today. So all you really had to have is food, and food was not such a big deal, because you have a few chickens, they give you eggs, you have a few sheep, they give you milk, you make cheese on your own, the women used to do everything on their own, there was no uh, Amazon that sends you food home. And people did, uh, if they had holidays, so the neighborhood, they did shechita, they spare the meat. It wasn't as difficult as it is today. Today, because of the big eyes and the materialism, people basically dedicate their entire life just to pay for their luxury. If you take away all the luxury, 80% of the expenses are going down with it, right? So therefore, in the old days, a person could be a shoemaker, go and fix shoes three, four hours a day, he has enough for today, goes to the yeshiva, learn for 20 hours, 15 hours. The next day, a few hours, again, tailor, same thing, does a suit or two, it's enough to live, to survive, how much more there is, besides paying the rabbi to teach their kids, and food, there was really nothing else. Clothes, it wasn't like today, everybody has 15 different suits in his, in his closet, and women have 300 pairs of shoes, it was a little bit different world than today. The, when we read all writings of a rabbi, it's, most people had one suit, they didn't even have a suit for Shabbat, they wore it all year round. And if it was ripped, they fixed it, they put patches and this, this is the way it was, it wasn't an embarrassment. Very few people could afford another garment just for Shabbat and Yom Tov. Most people were poor to the level that that's what I wear and that's it, and I wash it, I go, I wash it, I, I put it to dry by the lake. You know, and then I wear it and continue with my life. That's how it was. So, today, many of these girls that come from high-class lifestyle, they grew up in a fancy families, even if the family will give you money, eventually they will stop giving you money. They won't give you money forever. Even they gave you for five years. Let's say they committed. What will be after that? She, her mentality is very, very weak. Meaning, she's, I want to say the word spoiled, this is the way they raised her. It's very difficult for her to handle challenges. So, many people who looked for each ended up with uh, nice girls, everything fine, but she's unable to work. She's tired of doing laundry, she's not interested of doing shopping and raising children. She wants help all the time. I see, I see a lot of people, every time you call them around 6, 7, 8 in the evening, what do you do? Why don't answer? Why you never answer? No, no, I put my kids to sleep. Oh, I give them shower. The poor guy walks all day outside, comes, he goes early in the morning to Daven, 7 o'clock, finish around 8, 8 something, learn an hour, go to work, start to work at 9, finish at 5.36, by the time he gets home, 6.30, quickly maybe eat something, another two hours he has to bat the children and put them to sleep. Why? Because she cannot handle anything on her own. So he is the father and half-mother also. Why? If she grew up with the right mentality of the Torah and they raised her to be, like we say, Balabuster, and she did everything, she would never 
tell the husband, come and do these things for me. Next thing is going to be, I want you to cook for Shabbat. I want you to go shopping for me. I want you to change the diapers every day. I want you to come in the middle of the day and help me. I want uh, another cleaning lady. That's never going to end. Why? Can't blame her. That's how they raised there. That's how they raised there. That's what you get. Don't think there will be miracles when it comes to that. A person is a product of his environment. If that's the way he was raised, that's what it is. If she got used to Gucci bags that cost hundreds of dollars and everything is brand name because she was using her parents' credit card, now you with this problem. You inherited that problem and you have to live with that. There's nothing else you can do. If your son's going to come and cry to you, oh, what kind of a girl is this? Okay. Should have thought about it before. Because that's what you get. Because that's the way they raise there, especially here in America, which is the most materialistic country in the whole world, especially here in New York, which is the most materialistic city in America, together with Los Angeles. Right? So we see that most of the Jews live where? In a very materialistic environment. New York, Los Angeles, Miami. They don't live in isolated uh, end-of-the-world places behind the mountain of the darkness. No. Where they live in the most materialistic places. Even Yerushalayim. Yes, there's a lot of avrichim, there's a lot of poverty. But there's a lot of wealth. Some apartments in Yerushalayim cost more than $30 million in today's world. And in Tel Aviv, the same thing. So when people live in areas like this and they grow up in such an environment, there is consequences when it comes to relationship. And if you close your eyes and get uh, blinded by the great feeling of getting married and the nice wedding and all that, very soon you will realize what reality is all about. So, uh, it's very important. I'll give an example from the Shiduch of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, one of the biggest rabbis in the world, the son of the Stipler, the holy Stipler. When they came to the Stipler to offer Rav Chaim Kanievsky a Shiduch, who was the Shiduch? The daughter of Rav Eliashiv. Rav Eliashiv passed few few years ago. He was the biggest posek in the world. In past 92, 93, eh, excuse me, 102, Rav was very known. But when he was younger, he was a Dayan in the Rabbanut, meaning he got his salary from the Israeli Zionist anti-Torah government. Some people thought that it's not a good shiduch for Rav Chaim. When he was young, we're talking, he's now 90-something, probably we're talking about seven years ago, because they had uh, complaints against Rav Eliashiv that he kihen barabanut. I was working for the Israeli Rabbanut. The stipler went to ask the Chazonish. Chazonish was the biggest Chacham. He went to the Chazonish, and Chazonish said, the only girl that could live with your son is the daughter of Rav Eliashiv. No wonder Hashem got you that Shiduch offer. Why? Because Rav Chaim, your son, is a, a matmid atzum, very devoted to Torah. He loves to learn like you, a lot of Torah all the time he learns. No wonder he became one of the biggest Chachamim in the world. What woman would want a husband that all day learn Torah? No, they won't have that much time for her, all day gmarot, gmarot, his mind is in a different world. 
obviously he's not going to be able to give her the life of the dream of a woman. The only daughter, the only girl that can do such thing is a daughter that saw her father learn non-stop all her life. She could give the same leverage and same freedom to her husband. If you want Rav Chaim to get married, there's only one woman in the world, one girl in the world that saw something like this. Non-stop learning Torah. Who? The daughter of Rav Eliashiv. And yet, the daughter of Rav Eliashiv, Batsheva, got married to Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and she passed a few years ago, you know, and she was, uh, the stories about her, you can fill up books, how great she was, how devoted she was, and thanks to her devotion, Rav Chaim and all his sons, they all became big Rabbanim, Bnei Torah. Chazonish understood that the way you are growing up, is going to reflect in the marriage. If you're growing up with devotion to the Torah and you see the father all day learning, 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 then you know, you know what? If my husband will be like this, it's very good. Why? I don't know any other way. And that's very good. We can ask from the side of the girl, sometimes the girl wants a boy that will invest his energy in learning Torah. How she have a guarantee that the boy is going to learn Torah all his life? Right now, that's what he said. That's what his family said. Yes, of course, only learning, learning, learning. How do we know? Answer of Rav Shlomo, you're right. You will never know. There's no way to know 100% what's going to be. We don't know. We have plans, but we don't know. Even a person that wants very much to dedicate his life to learning Torah, we have no way to know for sure what tests is going to have and what circumstances was going to happen in his life in the future. But what's important for the girl is that she is interested to hear what's the real will of this guy. And this is something you can find out. If that's what he said, everywhere you go, I only want, you said to the Shatchanim, don't offer me any girl that wants somebody who goes to walk in Wall Street. I only want a girl that wants a boy that sits and learns Torah in Kolel from morning to night. He, right here you already see some of the qualities of this boy. That the Torah is the main thing in his life. If something is going to change a few years later on, he's going to have to go to work. and Unfortunately, some tests that he has to go and deal with. Okay. But at least you knew at the time when you got married to this boy, it wasn't a lie. That's what he wanted. He didn't want to hear about anything like this. And these things like this, you can find out. Also, when you're speaking, when you're dating him, you find out what is his real plan. Uh, we have a, a famous story of Rav Shmuel Misalant. Rav Shmuel Misalant and the Chidushe Arim, two big giant Chachamim, they spoke between them which, what time each one of them goes to sleep. Rav Shmuel Salan say he's going to sleep early every evening that he can get up early and have the strength to learn Torah in the morning. And the Chidushe Arim say he's going to learn to sleep very late. Rav Shmuel Salan ask him, why are you going to sleep late? Don't you have to get up early in the morning and pray? And if you go to sleep so late, how are you getting up on time? Chidushe Harim answered him, Right now, when I'm up, I have an obligation to learn Torah. 
there's no dismissal from the obligation to learn Torah even one minute in life, as you all know it. We always generally must learn Torah, besides when we sleep and when we are in a bathroom or taking shower, stuff like that, or when you have to eat something. Obviously, there is some breaks here and there, but the general rule is every open minute you have to dedicate for Torah. Now I'm up in the night. I don't have permission to stop learning, so I learn and learn and learn as long as I can stay up. So, to stop the learning voluntarily, because I'm planning tomorrow to get up early, who, who, who's, told me I'm, who's, who's promising me that I will wake up in the morning? Right now, I have this in front of me. I have my obligation to learn Torah. Do I know if I wake up in the morning? Now I'm taking advantage on any, any minute. That's when I cannot learn anymore and my eyes cannot stay open. That's when I fall asleep. Rav Shmuel Misalan say a person has to live according to reality of the world and nature. In a world, you have to have schedules. And what's the schedule? You're going with probability that you will wake up in the morning. There's a much bigger chance you will than you, don't, you, need, than you want. And right now, you need to wake up early and you need to go to pray early and you need to learn right away after the learning, after you eat breakfast. So if you're not going to sleep in a normal time, it will be very difficult for you to function in yeshiva and that's it. We have to add some comment to it. A side note, everybody who learns in the kolel, meaning that they pay you money, and you are married, and their kolel gives salary, like I have my kolel in Yerushalayim, I pay them salary to every one of the 31 families there. They get paid to them. They must keep the hours of the kolel. They cannot say, oh, I, did, I couldn't come today to Shachrit because I learn until 3 a.m. Because the people that pay you want you to learn from morning to night. And those are the hours, besides the short breakfast uh, break and the lunch break and the short evening break. And besides the Shachrit Minchai Narvit, the rest of the day is learning. You cannot come and say, oh, today I'm going to start learning at 10 a.m. or 11 because last night, don't worry, I learned until 3. No. If you're alone, you're not sitting in yeshiva, you have income, someone sponsors you, you learn, and you have your hours is uh, like of Chidushi uh, Arim. You learn until late. Okay, you learn, learn, learn. That's your schedule. So you learn until late, you, you pray a little bit later. That's, this is the way the schedule becomes. But if you get paid, you must come alert and fresh and learn, all, not fall asleep in the middle of the day, because then you're falling into a category of deceiving. You deceive your sponsors. That's why the supervisor in Yeshiva is his responsibility, as I instructed him many, many years ago when we started this call six months before September 11th. I will always remember this because I remember that six months after I opened that yeshiva, all the people who promised me to go with me and sponsor it, they all got stuck after September 11 when they didn't know what's going to happen. Business stops, one of them was making clothing, all the orders stopped, and all of a sudden we got stuck with no income. A lot of miracles happened after that, but this is how I always remember how it almost fell apart right in the beginning, just like now, with this coronavirus, 
and so many people stopping their donations, and we don't know what's going to happen. Same thing, miracles, Bezrat Hashem will happen, but instead of people now giving more, they're giving less. Why? Because they don't have emuna. So now they're actually failing their test. Hashem is giving them a test. They have money on the side. It's not that they don't have. They just worry because they don't work for a month or two. No? So if you don't work two months out of your life, if people was in a, in a in hospital for two months, they couldn't worry. Not the end of the world. Eventually they come, they catch up. But if they don't have a muna, immediately the first thing they do is stop their donations. Some people, believe it or not, after my last lecture, they actually increased their monthly donation. Not that many, maybe three people. But it's interesting how one of them even wrote, it's not that I have income. But I will. I realize what you say. What the Torah is to trust Hashem, whether you have, whether you don't have. I trust Hashem. If I stop, that means I don't trust Hashem. I trust my work. I trust my boss. And now when my boss is uh, fired me or put me on hold or I cannot go and bring the money like I'm used to, that means all alone I was I was never a believer in Hashem. Well, I was all baloney. I'm a faker. I'm not real. So now, not only I'm not worried, I'm actually giving more. Not to talk about the special protection that by giving tzedakah you get saved from debt. A lot of people got saved from debt just thanks to the tzedakah. As I said in, in one of the previous lectures, a friend of mine that was mamash in a very bad situation, they connected him already to a machine, he couldn't breathe. And Baruch Hashem, it was very difficult recovery, and he's still recovering, but he said, before he got sick, he said, oh no, don't deposit the check, who knows what's going to happen, my business is closed, the monthly check. Once he got sick, he realized right away, what can save me? It's Daka. Immediately, barely, could not say three words in a, in a conversation. Couldn't breathe, couldn't talk. Just barely whispered in a call, deposit the check. The next day, a turnaround in his situation. There's hundreds of cases like this I can bring over the years. How did Daka save people from horrible problems? But it's not our topic right now. We have to know that life without emunah, without faith, is horrible life. Horrible life. And if a person thinks that I'm bringing the money, I'm doing, without me nothing would have happened, he's not, gonna, he's not going to end in a good place when he leaves this world. Why? Because his entire life wasn't according to the Torah. The Torah said to the Jews, don't leave manna for tomorrow. Eat today because tomorrow I'll take care of you. Trust me. Don't say for tomorrow, you have what to eat today, the Gemara say, and you worry what's, what's, what are you going to eat tomorrow? That's Ketan Emunah, you don't have faith. Don't say I'm a believer. You can say I'm Shomer Shabbat, because you are. You can say I eat kosher, you are. You can say I learn Torah, you are. A believer, you are not. Believer means you never worry, no matter what. You never worry if you get married or not, if you will have children or not, if you will have money or not, if you have a job or not. You don't worry. Why? I'm in the end of Hashem. You're going to go against me? No. I want to be righteous. I want to make you pleased. I want to make you happy. I want to listen to you. And I'm counting on you. No one else. What incentive you have to go against me? If I'm so good to you, why would you go against me? 
You are merciful and kind to murderers, idol worshippers, to antisemite murderer goyim, Muslims that wants to murder all Jews. You were kind and nice to the Nazis where they were killing your own children. I, that keep Torah and mitzvot, that believe in you, count on you, wants to make the right thing by you, you will go against me and starve me? If I think like that, I'm not religious at all. I'm a robot that keeps few mitzvot. Yes, cannot deny. Keep some mitzvot, puts tefillin, he comes to shul. But he's not a religious person. To be religious means, when we say the word, I'm shomer mitzvot, I'm religious, means I have a foundation. What's the foundation? Confidence in Hashem, emunah in Hashem. You don't have it. How can you call yourself religious when you always worry? You have to fight with people about money all the time. You have to steal, you have to cheat, you have to be a con artist. What's all this? Cheat from the government, cheat on the application, run here, steal from there, don't pay on time. What's all these things? Where they come from? From no emuna. If all religious people would have strong emuna, you would never ever see some of the Chilul Hashem cases that you see on television and on the newspaper all the time. All of the things almost that happens when it relates to money comes from this sickness, lack of emuna. So now, when we, when, uh, you know, when a person has a, a place that he gets paid by, he must follow the rules. You don't want to follow the rules, okay, you go learn on your own. Nobody can tell you what to do. But when you're in a system, you must follow the rules. Why am I telling you all this, Sir Rav Shlomo? That you look at your views at life. The Chidusharim could not even plan the day of tomorrow. He said, I don't know if tomorrow I wake up, what's going to happen tomorrow, Hashem Gadol. Right now I'm learning Torah because that's all I can do right now. Tomorrow, let's see what's going to happen tomorrow. You want a guy to plan his entire life, that he learns Torah all his life? Does he know what's going to happen to him? Chas v'shalom, in a year from now he can have cancer and be in a hospital for six months. Who knows? What do you know? There's no way to know. However, we go by what the guy show. He show interest to learn. He loves to learn. He was learning until now. It's not a faker. Everyone recommend him and the Rosh Hashiva and say, oh, this guy loves to learn. He's very serious. Plans to be somebody big one day. That's what we go by. I told you that Rav Isaac Sher asked me to do something. He wanted me to give him a handshake that I am committing myself to it. I reached my hand to shake his hand and commit. And he pushed my hand away. He told me, remember, there is a big difference between what you want to do and what you will be able to do in reality. How can you commit on something that you don't know if you really can fulfill? How do you know? Yes, you want to be devoted to Torah. You promise you're going to learn all your life. How do you know? Do you know what's going to happen in the world? You can only check when you date the will of the person, his values, his plans. That's it. We have a say, Rabot Machashavot Ish, Hashem Itakum. The plans and the thoughts of a person is endless in the mind of a person. What comes out in the end? Atzat Hashem, what Hashem really wanted, that's what will happen. In one movement, it can change your entire planning and your entire future. In one movement. So we don't really know what's going to be. 
when you check when someone check with you about a boy you don't need to go too deep just say flat on a surface things that are general uh, you know you're gonna say general things about the midot don't go into details for every little thing they didn't ask they just want to know in general they're also going to ask other people you can say you don't know him enough to give a perfect report and review if you have something that you know it's good about him focus on that so oh, this guy always fixed the, the books in the yeshiva always clean he cares he's very very devoted he was he's only always the first one coming to shul he prays so devoted he's mamash great when he daven he gives me a lot of chizuk this guy if you know he's honest he never lies he's such an honest person this guy always stay later than everyone what everybody can find something good about it this guy clean this guy do this this guy bal chesed this guy love to learn extra this guy is a great davener find what you can say good about him it's not considered a lie because the way of the world is that people turn to exaggerate and the people that ask already take it to consideration and that's the halacha when it comes to vows and swearing in a gemara that people usually speak more than the size meaning they exaggerate and and there's no problem if a person did not keep the vow exactly because the mentality of the people is to speak with exaggeration and adraba on a contrary it's good to blow up the good things about him he's so good i'm so impressed by him this and that and if you don't exaggerate about him they would look at that as a problem why did he only say that barely but he didn't really focus on it too much like usually people do and that's very interesting you know uh, sometimes you have a guy that helps you once or twice that doesn't mean he's a Baal Chesed maybe he likes you, maybe he owes you maybe you did once a favor to him, to his son so he felt that he has to support you and help you if somebody comes and asks you about, it, about him you can say, oh he helped me very much it's Baal Chesed, it's not a lie he helped you, two times only very much supposed to say, it could have been once it could have been nothing if you look with good eye and you want to help someone bring the good out of them however remember in previous lecture i say if you know things that are critical such as is addicted addicted to drugs right now or god forbid is involved in criminal activity or god forbid he has serious sicknesses such mental issues that things like this you cannot hide because that's really could be critical to destroy the shiduch. Midot, personality issues, it doesn't mean that if you saw that it's bad to one, it's bad for everyone. It could be very good for her. Some husbands are horrible in a business. I know one guy like this. A real shark that basically destroys every one of his business colleagues when it comes to negotiation. But with his wife, is a real gentleman nice soft generous she lives better than a queen why in business he won't let you make an extra dollar won't will always take all the profit for himself why 
That's the deal. You want it? Take it or leave it. People surrender. They need the deal. Powerful, aggressive. In the house, a whole different story. So if people would judge him based on before he was married and he was killing everyone in the business too aggressive, <laughs> then when the wife would come or her family come to ask questions, they would say all the negative about him. She would lose this great shiduch. By the way, this this family has wonderful kids also. They all became very, very good kids. Totally not aggressive, totally generous, totally kind. Heart of a gold, very much like the mother. So something good came out of it. If a person would focus on something that looked negative, or can be, can be translated as negative, that shiduch would never take place. This is one example out of many. Today, the way of the world is to speak in exaggeration. And in the old days, they didn't call anyone rabbi. Even if they knew he knows the whole Torah, they would think a hundred times before calling him a rabbi. Today, people that barely know how to read Hebrew, they already call them rabbis. Sometimes you see these American rabbis, they don't even know how to read. I sometimes see how they read in their lecture, they don't know. They don't know grammar, they don't know how to speak, mil'el, mil'ra, they don't know basic things that they teach in alphabet in Israel, in Yeshivot. They don't know. They know maybe Gemara, they know other things, they know Halakha maybe, but there's foundation. They don't have some of them. And it's no problem. Is already a big rabbi consider. Why is it? Because today it's the way of the world. People exaggerate. And when they see someone who knows few Masachtor, Agaon, Agadol, wow, already. And this is why it's all in, rel- in relation to the generation. That's the way it is. To the point that, if you remember, in one of my series in the past, Questions and Answers, one person came to Chazonish. He said that he's giving a shiur. He's giving a shiur to a bunch of people, and they call him Arav, Arav, Kvod Arav, Rabbi, Rabbi in Israel. And he asked Chazonish if he has to fix them all the time, to fix what they say. They keep saying, uh, you know, they call him rabbi. It's not, well, not officially was rabbi. It was just an avrech in yeshiva that decided to teach a group of, of kids basic Torah. But for them, he's a rav, or kvod a rav. So the Chazonish told him, if it helps you in avodat Hashem, also it, it makes them give you more honor. If you tell them, no, I'm not a rav, my name is Itzik. And no, no, I'm not going to take you serious. They're not going to learn a serious. You're not going to be an authority. So if it helps you in Avodat Hashem, you can even present yourself as a rabbi. That's the Chazonish that by him, to get a word out of his mouth that was not accurate was an impossible mission. Over the years, I had many arguments with Dov Schwartzman. He taught me this foundation. In my opinion, Rav Schwartzman was one in a generation, in everything. He was, for me, a superb rabbi. While I was young, 60 years ago, great big rabbis evaluated him and admired him. I used to argue with him if to send out guys from his yeshiva. I told him his yeshiva has a reputation on the street that they have guys that are not so great. Their reputation of yeshiva is not so great. Maybe get rid of the few rotten apples, clean the yeshiva from the bad kids. One or two years, everybody will know yeshiva became superb. 
Rav Dov did not agree. And he said to me, that's not an argument. To send the Jewish neshama out to make my yeshiva a better reputation? If the boy spoiled the other good kids and dragged them to away from Torah or chas v'shalom to drugs or other bad things, oh, how he became an enemy. Is mamash a danger. Is mamash or mezik. Okay, so now you have to take precaution against it. But if he himself doesn't learn so good, it's not such a great davener, or he doesn't dress always the, the, the way we're supposed to dress. Sometimes he doesn't show up at all, or things like that. Obviously, the reputation that the yeshiva will get will not be the best. But do we have permission to gamble with the soul of that person and throw him out? Because usually the way it goes, if one yeshiva throw a kid out, he will not be accepted to any other yeshiva that is just as good. The next option will be a very bad option. Sometimes the drop is from 80% to 20%. If there was a way to go, there was some kind of system that if they throw you out from yeshiva that is considered 100, okay, so you go to yeshiva that is 90, not the end of the world. You can elevate yourself there. Maybe it's better for you, for your level. So if you were 90 and now they throw you out, you go to 80 and 80 go to 70. Okay, if there was such a way, ideal way, but there's no such way. Because the ego play a big role here, and a lot of the people who want this yeshivot, all what's motivate them is only ego, ego, and ego. And if one person will one time tell them, oh, yeshiva, I heard there's some problems there, there's not such a great guys there, that will kill his ego. And the next day will go and butcher all of them. You, go home. You, don't come here. Why? Because someone hurt his ego, and then he's going to murder six, seven kids. Or sometimes we'll throw out 15 of them in one day. Instead of taking them and showing them love and show them what they do wrong and speak to their heart and put his hand around their sh- shoulder, show them how much he cares about them and give shiurim about it and bring outsiders to speak about it and more and more and never lose the patient and bring them up to the highest level. Or if there is a situation that he must send someone out of the yeshiva, he will never do it before he makes sure that he call another yeshiva that is just as good and say, there's reasons I send him. Please don't put an X on a boy. I want you to accept him. This is the situation with him. Over here, things did not work for him so much. Then he would show that he's not throwing anyone to the street and whatever happened, happened. Okay, but uh, that's too much to ask. Unfortunately, today it's not the case. And it is what it is. I said with lots of pain. I saw it hundreds of times over the years. I don't make up things, as you know. That's the situation, what it is. So he was actually, as a young man of, of Shlomo Hoffman, before he became the legendary psychologist, <laughs> that was where his teacher, Rav Schwarzman, was one of his melamdim. And he said to him, Reputation? Honor on the street, name, this, that, money issues, family names, last name, racism. That's not something that should get involved in a decision if to keep a boy in yeshiva or not. Bezrat Hashem, if people that are making decisions like this would listen to what I say, I hope they'll put their ego down and reevaluate their ways. That's already a progress. Tov, we have to move on.
So we have uh, now we're going into the actual meetings. Now you're going on a date. Finally, you go after you check. You, it looks that it could be a good match. What's important in the dating? A, that you have chemistry, conversation, speaking, you're liking things that you hear, you make comments, he answer, she answer, they laugh together, wow, wow, you like it, I also love it, you know, not two people called as I sitting, looking at each other, awkward situation, barely the whole conversation, they said for an hour, maybe three, four things they barely said, and they didn't have anything in mutual. It's very difficult, obviously. So first thing is conversation. If you're not such a great person who on the spot always think what to say, come prepare. Make yourself a few notes. Yeah, a piece of a paper, put it on a table. Of course, that in case you ran out of what to say, you have something that you prepare. Not everybody spontaneously can constantly create conversation of an hour or an hour and a half. Especially if you have a girl that she's more shy, takes her more time to open up. Sometimes the other way around, the guy is more shy, the girl is more talkative. Second thing, that when you go out, it has to be a certain amount of intelligence. That will be similar to yours, plus minus a little bit. It could be a little bit less, it could be a little bit more, but not huge difference. One brilliant intelligent and the other one nothing. It's going to be very difficult. When they speak in a meeting, don't go too much into philosophy. It's never going to end this conversation. And they don't lead usually to anywhere. Pilpulim, pilpulesrak. Because everything that a person says in the meetings can be changed completely. It doesn't mean anything. It's true that intelligence in the brain doesn't change that fast. I mean, for the, for the worse. can only get to better or stay the same. But emotions and feelings changing dozens of times per day. Needless to say, in years. Dozens of times a person can be moody, happy, moody, happy, sometimes 20 times a day. Based on what he hears, based on what he watched, based on the news here, based on something he just read, based on a phone call, something that happened in a job, something that happened in yeshiva, a comment that someone made, things between him and her, financial stress, could be so many things, things with his children. You can catch a person and talk to him about a specific subject and the results will always be depending on the current mood. Very common. That's why smart people know where to come to their boss to ask for a raise. When? When he's in a very good mood or he just made a big deal. Okay, what's the big deal? Give me another $2 an hour. Some kids are very smart at it. You know, in every family, you have this clever kid, almost in every family, that knows when it's the time to get from his father what he really wanted the entire week. But he was sitting like a wolf. The wolf is hiding, waiting for the sheep to come, sitting and waiting for the opportunity. As soon as he saw the father got some nice check or something, a great conversation, or somebody just came and the guest, and it was very good in the mood, and he's laughing, he's all happy. Abba! 
I have to talk to you about Zara. Why? He found the opportunity. So you see, if he would come to his father when he just lost a lot of money, his stock market is so aggravated and bitter and even angry, and he's sitting home, he's angry, he's fuming about this and about that, about that the guy gave him the advice and about the president and about this. That's not the time to come and talk. So you see that whatever you say, today he will react aggressively and tomorrow he'll give you a hug for it. For the same exact thing. Why? Because nothing to do with what you say. It's now I'm happy and I want to give you a hug and yesterday I was aggravated and I took my anger on you. And that's very common in relationships because people do not know always to suppress their feelings and overcome what they feel in the current moment for the general cause. They don't know. That's why they're very moody, especially in today's generation. People are so unstable when it comes to moods and behaving. That's why a lot of them take all these medications, uh, this kind of, that guy, and all these names, HDAD, AD, these, I can never catch those names. And you know what I'm talking about, Ritalin and that one, and uh, anti-anxiety and stress vitamins and Hashem So, it will be depending on the mood of the second and it could be sometimes one thing, tomorrow I will say the other way. You, a woman come to husband, uh, Moshe, we want to send the kids to camp this summer. I want to send them to sleep away. How much is that? A lot of money. A few thousand dollars each kid. What? Were you crazy? Where am I going to get now $12,000? Why? Why? You always want things. Okay. She come in a different time. So what's with the camp? Okay, why? You didn't sign them up? No, I don't know. You got angry. You got upset. All upset. I didn't want to. I'm asking you now. Of course. Sign them up. What are we going to do? We have them here in the summer. Wait a minute. Two days ago, it was a whole different. Yeah. Two days ago, it was a hard day at work. And today, it was a great day at work. That's basically what it is. Oh, the kid did something that he liked very much. That second, it melted him. Sign him up. Maybe in two days from now, he's going to say, hey, can we get the refund? Why? People are moody. Great people don't let their moods reflect in their behaving. They said they speak to you the same way. They're happy, same way. They don't let people around them think that I'm angry about you or I'm upset about you because it's very common. You go to work, you meet someone in a kitchen room, and you are very angry about something that happened in the house with kids, with the wife, whatever. And the person comes and says, How are you? Good morning. Look at him like this, don't even answer. You're nothing against him. Your mind is in a fight that you had an hour ago. Or you have a, a, a meeting today that makes you nervous. But people around you, after a while, get the feeling that you have something against them. Sometimes it can actually ruin your life. Tomorrow the boss wanted to give a promotion to someone. And decided to give it to someone that is much younger than you. He came to the office after you. The only reason is because you're coming moody to work. And, as, and he thinks that maybe you have something against him, the boss. And he gave the, the other person promotion and you stay where you are. It affects your salary. And many other examples like this. And the fourth thing is to find mutual hobbies. Music, painting, art. You know, maybe to do sport a little bit together, take a walk together, go to maybe specific places to eat together, 
find things that I'm, there's always things that you're going to find that you don't like. You, she likes this, you don't like it. You like that, she doesn't like it. Okay, of course. But find the things you do like together. What do you like? You like to do this? Yeah, you like to go to this park, you know, take a walk, see the beautiful trees? Yes, let's do that. Let's go and uh, look for, I don't know, a kosher art gallery. If it's kosher, not all art is kosher, obviously. And uh, could be a trip, you can go see nature. Let's go to Niagara Falls, be impressed by the wonder, one of the wonders of Hashem. All kinds of things. You have to do things together. It's not only about religion and Torah and halacha and davening and raising children together. There has to be other things in life. Okay, one more thing about this matter. I ask many, I, I, I heard many times from the rabbi about the great benefit of having conversation. First, things comes out and makes the other person understand things and feel more relaxed. And also help you to define what's the situation of your spouse. So when you go on a date, I say spouse, but here we're talking about your date right now, and uh, you don't ask direct question, but you're having a general conversation about things, about something that happened in yeshiva. I don't have to say names. I heard about this, I heard that, I heard on the news this, someone told me that, what do you think about that? Did you hear what the rabbi say in his speech? What do you think about it? And through that, you'll learn a lot about her. If you ask her direct question, the nature of people, especially women, they get nervous. They right away block themselves. And immediately they take, uh, they're cautious. They're not uh, willing to give information. But if you have a conversation about this or about that, through the conversation, you get a lot more information than to make an FBI investigation and ask direct question. When a person lives in a general system, yeshiva, school, whatever the case is, so he has natural confidence because things are there, the food is there, the teachers are there, everything keeps repeating itself, so he's not nervous. He already knows what to expect. There's nothing to be nervous about. It's every day for the last few years. But when changes occurred and makes a person get nervous, the nature of the people that they don't like changes, especially drastic one, and makes them stress that now they go out of the frame, out of the box. Every exit out of the routine can create a conflict in the mind, in the feelings, can create stress and anxiety. Every new situation can also cause fear and shame. But going out on a date, obviously it's a drastic change. Life of a girl, first time going out speaking to a guy for the first time in her life, or a guy for the first time speak with a girl after learning Mara for so many years, all of a sudden has to speak about girls, doesn't know what to do, how to do. It makes him very stressed and very nervous. He sh people should not be afraid of it. person is built with a mechanism that every change automatically will make some stress and some fear. Change of a place, change of people, new faces, new job. But there is not a problem that this self-defense mechanism cannot handle. 
few days, you get used to the new situation. Second day will be better. Third will even be better. Since you already know that's what going to be the case, because that's the nature of the human being and the situation, to begin with, it should ease the stress. Sometimes it's a subject that a person doesn't know anything about it. That can create uh, stress. When it comes to the first date, nothing to be afraid of. You have to also take the consideration that the girl is in the same situation. She's also nervous. Both of you. So if you only focus on yourself and you don't think how she feels, you have to know that she feels the same way. Sometimes it's even harder for her than when it's harder for you. She doesn't know what to say, what to do. It's a little bit awkward. It can take sometimes half an hour until the conversation really begins. That same thing going to happen when you finally get married and you're going to be intimately for the first time. You don't know what to expect. Until now, it was only your imagination. Some people, they know how to read things better than others. Depend on their life experience, depend on their wisdom, depend on their knowledge. Okay. Most people, they will only know after it happened. They have no red lights or special sensor to detect people, to know body language, to know so much about the woman you're about to marry or to know about the man you're about to marry. Most people are naive. They're very innocent. They don't really know. Even smart people sometimes in certain things, they don't have the knowledge between relationships so much. So it's a whole new thing. It's going to happen, it could be very great and it will be a great burden came out of your heart, like a stone came out of your heart. It can create sometimes more stress if things did not work well or something that can create a little bit or a lot of tension. That's why Chatan in the night of his wedding is Patur Mikriyachma. Kriyachma, I have to say, after the stars appears every night, it's mitzvah from the Torah. Just as important as to put fill-in. You miss that, you miss. It's like you didn't put fill-in that day. Same equal bitul mitzvah taseh. However, if a chatan in the night of his wedding, he doesn't have to worry about kriyat shema. What do you mean? How long does it take? Two minutes? You can't sit on the side and say kriyat shema before the wedding begins, before the photographer comes with 5,000 pictures, come here, stand here, put your hand here. He cannot say kriyat shema. No, the answer, no. Why? We're talking about a chatan that never been with a woman and a kala that never been with a man. They dated, they decided to get married. In few hours, they're going to be intimate tonight. It's very worried. He never been with a woman. It's making him very stressed, stressful. That's why if you're going to say kriyat and daven now, anyway, your mind is not going to be there. Your mind is somewhere else. You cannot be mekaven. I wonder if today, when anyway nobody can be mekaven, almost nobody in their tefillot, and people barely can make kavana in Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokein the first pasuk, I wonder if today this rule applies just as much as it applies 500 years ago when Shulchan Aruch was written. Halacha, yes, I saw in one of the books that you should say it anyway. You should say it anyway. There's all kinds of pilpulim about it. Okay, that's not the topic right now. Let's move on. Uh, time is soon going to run out, but we have a few more things that we will be able to push in. Okay, now we're talking about uh, people that have special stoppage, something that stops them from their subconscious. Fear. There's a power inside them, it's hidden, that pushing away every shiduch that they've been offered. 
If a person sometimes wants to get something, this is a message, in, a lesson in psychology. When a person wants to get a specific thing very much and is unable to achieve it, the suffering of not achieving it or not getting what he wanted is tremendous. One of the ways that the brain helps the person to overcome this frustration and disappointment is with this self-defense mechanism that immediately begin to convince him you're lucky you didn't get it. You're lucky if you will go this girl, she's not, she's shallow, she's that. She's... So what happened? Because he couldn't get it, he convinced himself that he's very lucky. That's a way of him continue to handle with his crisis or disappointment. For instance, if in yeshiva you want to learn chavruta with one guy that is bright, very good to learn with him. Because you heard a lot of good things about him. You ask him if he wants to learn with you on a seder in the entire time. And he says, no, I can't, I'm sorry. Either he's already made plans with someone else, or he doesn't like the way you learn, whatever the case is. First, you're very hurt. Very hurt. Your ego got hurt. Your honor got was put down. You're disappointment, disappointed because you really wanted to learn and steig this entire three, four months coming up. So it's, it's a knife to the heart. Especially if you heard that he's going to learn with someone that in your opinion you're much better than that someone. That's bichlal destroys your ego. So what happened after two, three days? The brain began to work in helping you to overcome the problem. How? What a miracle I didn't learn with this guy. He's so stuck up. Look at his ego. How didn't I see it before? Ugh, it's disgusting me. Every little thing now we say, you pay attention in a negative way. Why is it? Yesterday you thought he's the greatest in yeshiva. You were dying to learn with him. All of a sudden, three days later, you think about him that he's the worst. Did he really change in three days? Most likely not. What changed? You could not take the pain. So the brain went into work. Remember, a second, the brain, is a shamash of the will. The will got hurt. The circle come to his service to help him to overcome the disappointment. Or when the will has a desire, the brain also comes to work. Oh, it's good for me. I know it's good for me. The explanation is because you have the desire to learn with him. And when you did not get your satisfaction, you hurt. The pain is unbearable. You cannot deal with the jealousy you have. Same, it, can say, it can be the same thing if two girls, one girl were offered to one guy and another girl, and he chose the other one and not her. And he tells the Shatchanit, I decided to go with this and that. The Shatchanit wasn't so bright, and she told the girl. He decided to go on a date with this girl. And they happened to be from the same seminary. That's a knife to the heart. Why she should have told her? She should have just said, it's busy already. Not all the time. You have to tell people every detail to hurt them. But the jealousy rise now. And it's a killer. Jealousy kills a person. It distracts him from every day's life. So what do you do? How do you overcome jealousy? 
you begin to find defects in the something or someone that you're jealous with. Oh, she's not as great as me. I'm much prettier than me. Come to your sister. Who's prettier? Me or this woman? Oh, you're much prettier. You're younger. You look better. Wow, wow. Well, you compare yourself to her? Oh, great. You see? This guy is, is stupid. How did he choose her over me? That's the way people behave to overcome pain. If they would learn Torah and walk on their midot, then jealousy would not rise. Because Hashem runs the world. <laughs> What's to be jealous with something that is not good for me? Hashem thought it's good for me. That's who he would set me up with. If he didn't set me up and I did not get that shidduch, that means Hashem knows better than me. I think I know better. But, but it's not true. What's the point of getting hurt? How many times we thought we lost some, something and we actually gained a lot more? And how many times we thought we got something and it was canceled for us? How many times? There's endless amount of time. When they threw Yosef to the pit, the brothers, did he ever dream that he would be the most powerful person in the whole world for 80 years thanks to that moment? When he was with the snakes and the scorpions, thinking any minute I'll be dead here. When the Arabs picked him up, they took him to Egypt, and he knew, that's it, I'll never see my family ever again. My father, my beloved father, I learn with him every day Torah, I won't see my father, how can I, wow, what a life I'm going to have now. Take me to a land, they take me to San Francisco, they want to make me Hashem Rachem, make sins with all the guys over there. That's what the plan for Yosef, why they took him over there and sold him. And what happened in the end, thanks to that, he went through a suffering period, went to jail, 12 years. By age 30, he became the treasury of the entire world. Nobody in history had more power than Yosef in a whole history. No man controlled the financial world for 80 years in a row. It never happened. Even here in Wall Street, it could be four years, it could be a little bit more, that's it. I move you. Bernanke was very good. He saved America in 2008 with very good decisions he made. He, he prevented chaos. He prevented people going bankrupt and killing each other on the streets here after the crash in 2008. As great as he was, he was removed. Somebody else came and then somebody else came and now we have another one. So what's going on? How much influence you can have on the world? Four years. If you're president of the United States, eight years. That's it. If you in Amer if you put in 20, 30, 40, whatever it's gonna be, okay, so he's the most powerful person in this country. But Putin is not dominating the whole world, not president of the United States and not the president of China. They dominate some parts of the world and for X amount of years. Nobody controlled the whole world for eight years. Only Yosef. And when did the moment of his control started? The moment that his brother were jealous with him and threw him to the pit to die with the snakes. That's where his salvation actually began. And that's, I can give you a million examples like this. There's no time for that. That's not also the topic. So now a person wants to overcome the pain and the jealousy. Ah, she's fat. Oh, I don't even like how she talks. She didn't want me. I'm stupid. I don't know how I agree even to go on a date with her. He convinced himself. You come a week later. Okay, so do you want to go with the girl? Now it's sometimes he actually pushed her away from his mind with such negative thoughts that he said, no, 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 I don't want. I don't know how I agree back then. Sometimes 
the truth comes right back. Oh, yeah, she wants me this time? Okay, let me swallow my ego and give it a chance. It's all depend how much she was able to push it away. This defense, this mechan- mechanism of defense, how strong it was working. Sometimes it works so strong it doesn't want to hear anymore about this shidduch. His ego was hurt, that's it. He pushed her away, he convinced himself she's a monster. Or by her. She went, checked, she heard a few bad things, she put it together. No, no, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Thank God Hashem saved me from him. That's how it usually goes. And this way, Rabbeinu Yonah, 800 years ago, he writes that Lema'es etara, to despite the bad, is one of the powers that a person has to overcome his desire, his yetzer, his evil inclination. Sometimes you desire something very much, you cannot control your desire. It, it takes away your mind, takes away your heart, takes away your, your body, takes away everything. How are you going to win this war? Only one way that you begin to find anything negative about this, something or this woman, whatever the case is, and it helps you to deal with the struggle and with the desire. And the, the, the nation of Israel, from generation to generation, everybody knows, even today, when most of the Jewish nation, unfortunately, are secular and disconnected from Hashem and from the Torah completely, almost everybody knows that to eat pig, pork, it's bad. Not only bad, disgusting, Ugh, horrible animal in the mud, eating garbage, eating diapers, eating everything it sees. Such an ugly animal. Such a, This is how we are. As Jews, we grew up. By the way, Muslims also don't eat pork. They learn it from the Jews. So a lot of the people in the world hates this animal. Christian loves it very much. In Russia, it's a, the, it's a must eaten every day. But some people grew up with a mentality to be disgusted from pork. Then they don't even want to hear about it. But the truth is, the Gemara say, when it comes to pork, the Gemara say, I have desire. It is delicious. Maybe you have a great steak from it. It may be very good, very tasty. But I am unable to eat. Not because it's dirty, not because it's not healthy, not because it's disgusting, not because what he eat, not because of that. Those are reasons that the sechel, the brain, gave us as Jewish people over the years to help us despite this pork that the goyim eat so much around us in the European country. Oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, I can't even look at it, don't even show it to me. In a butcher shop it looks the same. Piece of meat a little bit wider, no? If you eat egel, calf, it also looks light. Or keves, also lighter, not so red. But because the mentality was so much to speak against it, everybody despises it. Some people, if they touch it, they run quickly to the mikveh. That's, they're so nervous. I one time had a person that bought a leather jacket, and then he looked inside and he saw it was made from skin of pigs. He went crazy that he wore it. I had to relax him that the Torah said you're not allowed to eat it. The Torah didn't say you're not allowed to use the skin of it to make leather couches and clothing 
and other things. Why he got so disgusted? Because some people also comes to dogs. Dog from two million animals spiritually is the worst animal in the world when it comes to spirituality. Don't get confused. Dog can help you, dog can fight you, can save you from death, can help you with the sheep, can protect your house, can work with the police, can work with the army, can save life, can be a very good friend to some people that they have nobody else. Okay, we know all that. But spiritually, the Kabbalah is speaking very bad about dogs. Having dogs in the house, horrible, horrible thing. According to Halakha, you're not allowed to have a bad dog in the house, meaning that he can bite someone or attack or get a pregnant woman nervous. Then you're not allowed to have it in the house. If you have a backyard and he's going to stay outside all the time and the weather is allowed, it, okay. But according to Halakha, there's no restriction of having a little puppy, a cute little dog, because Halakha is Halakha and it does not mix Kabbalah and mystical secrets. But when it comes to Kabbalah, it's the worst thing to do. That's why Jews, and again, Arabs learn from the Jews again, to despise dogs very much. I'm talking the ultra-Orthodox people who know Torah. They don't even want the dog to touch their pants in the bottom. When they come, sometimes you come to someone's house and you hear a dog is coming, you get very nervous that it doesn't touch you. And if it does touch you, a lot of people will run immediately after that to the mikveh. They can't function. The dog just touched me. What's the big deal? It's a dog. They cleaned him. It's not... No, it's psychologically, because I know it's such a, spiritually such a low thing, I don't want any contact with it. This is how people push it away from their mind. How do we learn from the Torah that dog is the worst? In the Torah, because the Torah says that if you replace your dog with a, with a sheep, and you want to bring the sheep to Bet HaMikdash, Hashem said, I don't want that sheep. Any other animal you can replace, no problem. Can replace other, even a pig. You can replace. You give someone a, a pig, and he gives you a sheep instead. You can take this pig, and bring it. Uh, they can take that uh, sheep and bring it into sacrifice in Bet Hamikdash. But if you replace a dog with that, the Torah said, "I don't want it." At non zonau mechir kalev, a replacement of something you gave to a prostitute, or a value of a dog that was replaced with a sheep, and you want to make this sheep holy and sacrifice it. I'm not interested. From here we learn that the dog has something worse than all the other animals. Why other animals the Torah did not forbid? By the dog, it forbid that. Also, one more thing we should know, that according to Kabbalah in Ariya Kadosh, in Shara Gilgulim, the most wicked people, some of them comes in reincarnation in dogs. That they take their soul and attach it to the nefesh of the dog. The punishment is not being a dog freezing in the street and eating in the garbage, no. Because they don't actually feel the physical suffering of the dog. The suffering is a spiritual feeling of the attachment of the purest Jewish divine soul, the spark of God, attached to a nefesh of a dog that is very low spiritually. That connection... We don't understand right now, but that connection makes the soul suffer every second. Tremendous suffering. And that's obviously a mystical thing. But this is a way of us pushing away pigs and dogs and snakes. And Oh, why are it snakes? Oh, the snakes is the one who actually caused the sin of Adam and Eve. And he's, 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 he hates people and he stings them from the, from the ankle. And is similar to Lashonara. All these things, why to despite the snake? This is just 
the way the self-mechanism in a subconscious of a person works. So it happens, uh, we call something like this in, in modern psychology, reacts, re, reacts information. That's the, the actual name of it. It's actually in English, reaction formation. That's the correct way in psychology. And, uh, and what it means is that a person convince himself, if you eat it, you will vomit. That's how they tell children. If you eat it, it's poison. If you eat it, you're going to do this. It's gonna, this will happen to you. And then he gets such fear from it that he hates it so much, doesn't want to look at it for the rest of his life. Mamash, we almost finished. When sometimes a person has desire for a woman, for women, in the yeshivot, up to a certain age, they constantly speak about the, the obligation to be modest, to watch your eyes, not to make scenes, not to waste seeds, and all this. One of the ways that boys develop the ability to deal with that and not to follow their natural desire as teenagers is because they made convince themselves that a woman will be a big burden, will be an obstacle between me and Hashem, will ruin my Torah, will ruin my holiness, and anyway, what's the big deal? What's to talk with women about? They're boring. They're, they're only talking about cosmetic and shopping and food, and it's not what I want. That's how he made a blockage between him and her. Now, he's 21, 22, 23, doesn't want to go on dates. Rosh Shiva calls him, hey, Moshe, 23, why don't want to go on dates? What happened? Is there any problem? You want to talk to me? So what we call something like this? There's two ways to deal with that. Obviously, there's something that blocks him. It's called tikkun ha-yetzer u-kvishat ha-yetzer. Two different things. Tikkun ha-yetzer, fixing the inclination. Kvishat ha-yetzer means occupying it, overcoming it. The way, first way is tikkun ha-yetzer. What does it mean tikkun ha-yetzer? We receive satisfaction to that in- inclination from different sources. I have my desire. However, I'm going to replace that desire with something else, such as, like the Gaon Mivinna say, Torah. Great feeling to learn Torah. You sink into it, it occupies your whole mind. You don't have the head for anything else while you're learning serious around the clock for years. The spice of the Torah killed the desire for women completely. If you're serious and you don't have internet or phone, it's, if you're in and out, two hours, three hours Torah, and then you go and watch hor- hor- horrible things on you, obviously on YouTube nothing will happen. But I'm serious. You're serious. No smartphone, no computer. Serious learning. Clean yourself from horrible des- environment out there then you don't need, you don't have the desire, you're very, very strong. Why? Because you're deep in the Torah. The grasse, that's only if you develop sweet feelings from learning Torah, meaning you learn things that make you happy, you enjoy it, you're smart, so you enjoy Gemara, you enjoy every time you come up with the answer and then you see the Rambam say it, or Rashi say it, or Tosfot say it, or Rabbi Akiva Eger say it. It gives you great pleasure. You won't replace this for anything in the world. The other way is kvishat ha-yetzer, overcoming the yetzer, not replacing the yetzer with something else to satisfy it. Now we have to overcome and occupy that yetzer. 
That's not tikkun. You're not fixing here. In tikkun, you take what's bad food that the yetzer was getting, which is women that are forbidden to you, push it out, put instead Torah, okay, the problem is resolved for the time being. However, Kvisha is that you still want the woman. Still want it all the time. You still have that desire. But you fight with that desire and you overcome it another week and another week and another week. How do you have the strength to overcome such a strong desire? One of the ways is to draw the sin in a despicable way. What's women? The Gemara gives all kinds of examples. What will help you to overcome that desire? For instance, guys develop natural resistance to women. They say she's stupid. She doesn't understand anything from her life. She's just Yetzirah. What good is going to come out of her? Look how many people destroy their life because of women. The more a person has desire, the more he needs the power to make it despicable. He will put more and more and more excuses. It makes it easier for him to overcome this desire. When I was Bachur Yeshiva in Yeshivat Hebron, one of the biggest yeshivot, most good, most important yeshivot, I argue with one of my friends about our views about girls. I said that girls are smarter than boys. And I proved it to him from the words of Chazal, our sages in the Gemara, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave extra wisdom to a woman more than a man. It's the Gemara in Masechet Nida, page 45, on the left side of the page. And because the men, the boys are obligated to keep mitzvot only when they become 13, and girls are obligated when they become 12, that means they reach maturity faster than the boys. And you see from here, they're more mature and they're more wise. Otherwise, why would they start at age 12? That's what I said, Rav Hoffman. And he said the exact opposite. He said, Adraba, on the contrary, because girls don't have such great wisdom, when they come to age 12, they don't mentally develop anymore. What's the point of waiting for later age? There's no difference between by them by age 12 or age 15. They won't develop more than that. Even if they'll be 25, they'll still be in the same mental state. Their brain will always stay the same. They don't have Torah, they don't have a way to evaluate and to develop. And by men, their brain is constantly developing and their wisdom and their intelligence and their knowledge because they learn and learn. So there's a difference between 12 and 13. This is a perfect example how his friend convinced himself to think negative about women to help him to fight with his natural desire to women. Obviously, who was right here? Rav Afman was right. That's what the Gemara say. But the friend that also learned Torah already convinced himself that women has nothing to waste time with. When they both will come to age 21, 22, and they have to get married, who is going to have a much easier shift into relationship? Obviously, the one who learned in a healthy way. The one that kept pushing it away may take him time to change now 180 degrees. The Gra, the Gaon in his commentary about Proverbs, chapter 2, verse 11, 
This is what he says. ואי אפשר לפנות את ליבו מערעורי עבירה רק על ידי נעימת ומתיקות ידיעת התורה. כמו שכתוב, איילת אהבים ויעלת חן. Translation, there is no way to clean the mind, the brain, the thoughts, right? From the desires, unless you fill it up with sweet, delicious Torah. Gives you great pleasure. And Mamash, the last thing for today, and we're done here. In, the last, in recent years, many cases came to me of Avrichim, people that just got married, and they had difficulty in their marriage. Why? Because the reason for their difficulty was that while they were teenagers, from their subconscious, they pushed the woman away as a despicable thing. And now they cannot complete the turnaround of 180 degrees into a marriage life. And it caused them resentment. After all these years, most of the guys who came to me to tell them that it bothers them, and they don't feel attraction, they all said that it went away naturally. Usually it takes a few months and it goes away. Why? They get to know their wife, they get to get used to it, they feel less stress, they already pushed away from their mind the mechanism that was always making women look bad. They learn more about the subject, they see about the greatness of the women and how important is a man to have a woman. and how missing he is without it, and this is what Hashem said, and that was the first mitzvah in the Torah, and the more he speaks to a chacham that helps him, obviously it helps. From my experience, what I heard later from those guys, that they can divide the relief that they had from this resentment to three different times. Some of them, it's right after they met Lechaim, and they decided to get married. Some of them, only after the chupa, they finally had that release. And some of them, few months after the wedding. It took few months, meaning the beginning was shaky. It wasn't so good. Most of them, when I met them two years after the wedding, I asked them how they feel. They didn't even remember what they talked to me two years ago. That they had resentment and... an uh, obstacle in the relationship with a woman. From a very young age, they educated us to stay away from girls. That's why the relationship between boys and girls, it's a negative thing, because they have to skip distance away. And therefore, we don't know, we did not learn and know about their values, about their advantages, about their talents, about other things that we would need very much one time when we will have to get married. especially about the internal powers that works in the subconscious that we always despise the woman because of this fear to make sins with her. And this is a natural resentment that the brain develops. But when the time comes, we have to turn away this resentment into attraction and to learn and understand that a woman is a great thing and to learn about the value in her. It doesn't happen overnight. It may take time. You get used to it. Just the fact that you're dating already reducing these stops that you have in your mind and resentment. And the more time will pass by, the more it will go away until you won't have it at all. And we have to explain to the boy that what he thought over the years that a woman, Chash V'Shalom, is a 
is this something to despise? It's not true. We have mitzvah to get married. The Gra said that all the desires that a person has in life, he needs it for his service of Hashem, for avodat Hashem. Why? Because Hashem would not give a desire to a person in his nature unless he there was a positive use for it. Just the person has to know how to maneuver and when to use this desire and when not to. And when to use it for good thing and not to use it for bad thing. Meaning the desire for a woman is a natural positive thing. Hashem wants the man and the woman to live in harmony and peace and intimacy and makes great connection between their souls when they're together and all that. But that desire was meant for the right woman, not just for going to make scenes, right? Once a person cannot control his desire and he go make scenes with women that are not going to be there, is women. That's where the problem become huge. Once he used that desire for the right place, when the Torah permitted, that's when he actually used the desire that Hashem gave him for the right reason. The Gaon Mivilna, the Grasse, you can never reach the ultimate level in Avodat Hashem, in righteousness to God, without a woman. And in a book of Reshit Chochmah, Reshit Chochmah, it's by the legendary Kabbalist Rav Eliyahu Davidash 450 years ago in Tzfat. He said that as long as a person did not get married, is less than a donkey in his Avodat Hashem. Meaning he never reached the understanding, the deep understanding of the connection to Hashem. We're speaking emotionally. His emotion to Hashem can never reach the right level because he never experienced the love of a woman or love to a woman, which will open up his feelings also to a greater Avat Hashem. And I'll finish with a story. We'll finish right here for today. About this, Rav Shlomo said that Rav Gdalia Neidel Zatzal was a Magid Shiur in Yeshivat Vishnitz. He was a Litvish Rebbe teaching by the Hasidim in Vishnitz. And uh, after a short while he left, Rav Gedalia told Rav Shlomo that he could not stand how in the middle of the Shiur Gemara the boys would jump at the window to see the Rebbe when the Rebbe was walking nearby. The Rebbe was like a second God to them. Rav Shlomo said to him the opposite. That's a positive thing. Because that shows that it's Tikkun HaYetzer. What is Tikkun HaYetzer? They have curiosity and all kinds of things that actually attracts the mind of boys. Instead of running to negative things, what they use the curiosity is to see the Rebbe walks by. It's a good thing. What's better than they're going to go and see what the internet has to offer? Back then there was no internet. So we see that the explanation of the Gra to Proverbs 25, verse, uh, verse 17, the evil inclination is very, very important to a person in his Avodat Hashem, in his religion experience. And he has to dominate it and control it and use it in the right way, not God forbid to forbidden things. This desire, it's needed for the maintenance of the body for peace of mind, sexuality, and all these things that between a man to a woman, it's, we're not Christian. Christian destroyed the Torah, modified all the truth, ruined everything. 
So you want to be holy, you should not be with a woman. You want to be a priest, don't get married. I don't have to tell you to what horrible things it leads a person to be. That's why I saw an article that 80%, I don't know how correct is the article, but they supposedly made a research that 80% of the priests they interviewed were actually gays. Why they got to be priests? Anyway, they don't have desire for women. So they go and they become priests. According to the Torah, you're incomplete when you don't have a woman. When you don't get married, you still did not reach your completion. So, the, the Gaon Mivilna explained, the Yetzirah is under the good inclination. Once you control it, and like we say in Kriyat Shema, in a good Yetzir and a bad Yetzir, in both inclinations, so... Hashem created that evil inclination that you should overcome that desire and don't use it for forbidden things that you should get a huge reward for it. But it's not the only reason. Because every evil inclination will also have the time for it to use it one day. Just like the like we give an example of attraction to women, it will come that you're going to need this attraction for your own woman when you get married. And the Yetzeratov, the good inclination, doesn't want to eat, doesn't want to drink, doesn't need a woman. If you would only have the good inclination, the world could not exist. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu put the evil inclination also in a person. And a person has to serve Hashem even with his evil inclination. And that's why he eats and he drinks, and that's why there are kids that are born to the world, because he has those desires. Otherwise, nothing will happen. If everything that would be only according to the Yetzirah the world would not have any existence. The good thing is that a person should use the even inclination also for the sake of heaven and not just for his desire. Also to do the will of Hashem. And that's what it means with both of your inclinations, the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah and we should also understand that uh, in the nefesh, in the spirit of a person, there's a big difference between the conscious and the subconscious. Sometimes there is a power that pushed away things from us. And at the same time, there is a power that pulled this to us. Two opposite powers work in our mind at the same time. In the Bilti Muda, in the subconscious, there is something that attracts us to us. In the conscious, we push it away. Or the other way around. The conscious pull it, and the subconscious push it away. It's like actually two different computers. One is pushing, one is pulling. What are we going to do now? Inside our mind, two opposite power. One is pulling, one is pushing. Imagine now you have a group of guys pushing the car from the back and push, some of them pushing from the front. Usually it won't move, no? You get stuck. You paused. So what's going to be in a case like this? Obviously, obviously, Rav Shlomo said about that in the name of Rav Isaac Sher and said that Saba Mislovotka, the greatest ethical rabbi, used to talk a lot about this, that a person has contradiction in him. And the Sava say, here is a solid proof in Shulchan Aruch. If a person has a father that is rich, and the father passed, 
And once you heard that your own father that you love so much is very rich man passed, you actually got two opposite news. The one news is horrible that you just lost your beloved father. The second news is that you just became a very rich man, that now your father left you $10 million on your name and in the will. It's going to say that only when he passed them, the business goes to you. What's we going to do in Halakha? What bracha are we going to make? Halakha is, you have to say, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Dayan Haemet, when the father died, Baruch Dayan Haemet, that's all we say. And at the same time, you have to say, Baruch Atah Hashem Atov Ve'Ametiv. In one hand, Baruch Dayan Haemet, the judge that is fair, took away the person, he knows what he's doing. Same time, it's like, Omo Shecheyanu. Thank you for the gift I got, Atova Ametiv, the kind God who benefits people. The Saba Mitzlovot can say, it's a wonder. How can a person say Atova Ametiv when it's such a broken heart and such a sorrow? Can he really say Atova Ametiv with happiness? You see from here that at the same time, two opposite things working in a person at the same time. Sad part and happy part. And it's the same event that he found that his father passed, right? He's very upset and very worried and very nervous. How's life going to be now? And at the same time, he's thinking, wow, I'm a rich man now. I have a lot of money. I finally will be able to do things I couldn't do until now. And I'm going to buy this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to help my wife. I'm going to help my children. I'm going to buy finally a house. All kinds of things right away comes to him in one shot. At the same time, he make a tova amitiv, even though he split half and half in his feelings, what we call mixed feelings. And, uh, and Bezrat Hashem, I think that's where we should leave it right now. We made, Baruch Hashem, a great progress today. And uh, Bezrat Hashem, on lecture number six, we will speak more about girls, about the way they were raised, and about Lotto Veyota Adam Levado, and about some other more things coming from the Rambam, uh, why Hashem made the person the way he makes them, and the woman, and the man, and the connection between them, some very interesting things coming up next week. I would love to actually ask, or maybe beg, I should say, to every one of you not to be selfish and share this lecture with everybody else. The problem with people is that they're very light-minded. People decide which lecture to watch based on the name of the lecture. And that's a very big mistake. The name of the lecture never, ever tells you how good it's going to be or how bad it's going to be. The name, most of the times, the speaker doesn't even make the name. Somebody else makes the name. So that's besides that. Second... We're speaking about a series. Series, we call it by one name. We have to name it the same name every lecture. But obviously every lecture is totally different than the other. And it's a treasure. Treasure of knowledge to the life of a person. Even people that are married. Even people that are single. Male, female. People that are young. People that one day will have to deal with that. People that are grandparents. People that are married, their children. Basically all of us. Not sharing it with other people is preventing the good from going to other people. And we have an obligation to help each other. We're all one unit. Keeping the information only by yourself and you can press by press of a button sharing it to dozens of people and not doing it, it's a crime. 
literally it's a crime it's not just a small scene it's a very big crime you have the, the the medicine to save life to save the souls of people and you reserve it in your pocket or by your computer you neglect you don't share it you are selfish you don't deserve to even listen to the lectures themselves i made it clear very much that people that don't share my lecture i never gave them permission to listen to the lectures Besides few people that send me clear explanation why they can share, and I was convinced that they're right, I gave them special, special permission to watch it anyway. Anyone who watched the lecture and don't share it to other people, in my opinion, is still information I never gave him permission to. You don't want to share, don't listen. You don't deserve to listen. Anyone who don't care about others, I can care less. I don't want him to listen to this lecture. Go find someone else. Someone else can give you lectures, you can listen, you don't have any obligation to share. I actually help you to save you from the scene. Maybe you look at it as something negative, but believe me, it's positive for you. Because not sharing it, it's a crime. Listening to this whole thing and not sharing it with other people that can benefit from it because you worry what they're going to say, or maybe they want to be your friends on Facebook anymore, that's very selfish and, excuse my language, very foolish. Worry about them more than worry about Hashem's will, that's a crime again. It's another crime. Being selfish, not sharing, it's a crime. What do you care of doing chesed, of pressing a button and teaching another 50 people this exact shiur? That the rating of this shiur should come a hundred times higher. Not ten times higher. It can go a hundred times higher if every one of the people who watch would click share. Or send it later. They take the link and send it to the groups. I don't know, WhatsApp, Twitter, all these places. Share it with others. Post it to people. That can create a revolution by much more people. And you become Mezakeh Arabim. And I don't have to tell you, the Zohar said that someone that is Mezakeh Arabim, that's spreading Torah to other people in any way and in any form, in any shape, with his money, with his time, with his computer, with his today, with the social media, Anyone who spreads Torah to others, especially positive Torah, exactly the way Hashem once said, without all the clowns out there that speaks a lot of horrible, negative, derogatory things which contradicts the Torah. Here, at least, you know, it doesn't move an inch from the ideology of the Torah. If you listen to me for years, you know how careful I am never to go against the principles and never to spread heresy, God forbid and to fight against all these wicked clowns who spread heresy and tell people opposite of the Torah to make them feel great, that they should give them all kinds of benefits, but they don't really care what's going to be the end of these people. At least over here it's authentic, it's real. And unfortunately, unfortunately today, in today's world, if you know what's going on out there, it's very rare that you're going to listen to somebody for 10, 20 years and you won't find heresy in his lectures. Very rare, unfortunately. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but that's the reality. So if you finally have it, why you keep it only for yourself? I, don't get, I never understand that there's only 10% of the people sharing. That means 90% of the people almost are selfish people. And how do you stand one day in front of Hashem and He will ask you, you watch 5,000 lectures, now one time you shared or 99% of the time you didn't care about others. What did it cost you to press share? And how many times we keep repeating it and still it doesn't help. It goes a little bit 1% more for a week or two and then it goes back to normal. 
Why? I don't know. I wish I knew the answer, but I hope this speech I just made now in the last five minutes finally would wake you up from your dream. Listening and not sharing, first of all, by me it's gezel. You're doing something against the Torah. Mitzvah, Abba, Be'avera, Ena Mitzvah. Mitzvah that comes through a sin is not mitzvah. If you steal a book from a bookstore and you learn Torah, it's not mitzvah. Torah goes to the Satan, to the Sitra Why? It's stolen. You stole something, you're using a stolen object. Every second you hold it, you have an obligation to return it. I don't give permission to anyone to listen to the lectures unless they share it with other Jews. Jews, Gentiles, I don't care. Everyone deserves this information. Right? But if they refuse to share, stop listening. Go to somewhere else, find whatever you want over there. Thank you very much. Call